Well, you're probably wondering, with so many talented preachers, why are you getting me week after week here? So, well, let me tell you, it's, it, I do love to preach, but there, there is a method to the madness. Um, I was actually not scheduled to preach this week, but um, my daughter, Charlie, who some of you know from, her, from earlier in life, is, is very pregnant with child. As a matter of fact, she's, into, she's just past her 39th week moment, and we all thought the baby was coming early. Uh, because of some nurse who said something got Charlie excited about an early delivery. And those of you that are moms in the room understand how a pregnant lady can, can take any gra- grasp of hope. And so we thought she was coming early. She's not. And so I and Father James switched weeks because we anticipate that by next week, we will have a baby. So pray for us. I have to tell you that, uh, you know, this is my second grandchild. Uh, and pray for us because he's a boy and we've got another boy coming after him in a month. So we're going to have lots of, lots of little guys to take care of. But uh, pray for me especially, because, or pray for us especially because there's something very vulnerable about your daughter being pregnant. I, I, I love my daughter-in-law. I'm very close to Paige. And maybe it's because Charlie's had some issues with her pregnancy, but uh, we had, she, the baby was so big, he was laying on her kidneys and causing a all sorts of pain and things like that. And then her blood pressure has been rising and falling and stuff. But there's, there's a real sense of vulnerability when your child is pregnant with child. And, and there's this vulnerability because you ladies have done an amazing thing. You've really put your life on the line to, to, to have children, to have us, to bring us into the world. And it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit I, it's a different feeling, I got to tell you. As a, as a dad, it's very different to have a pregnant daughter. So pray for us and, and, and just pray for us in this situation in this time period we're living in. But that's why you're getting me so many weeks in a row because I'm anticipating that with all these babies that are going to be landing here shortly that I'm going to have to take off a few weeks or at least be away from the pulpit for a few weeks. Well, why do I tell you that? Well, first of all, I just want to explain to you, you know, that why I'm, you know, preaching again and again with these great guys behind me, but also because I think it, it ties into the vulnerability that Jesus gives us in the beginning of his, his gospel. And not to relate at all, the, I mean, it's not any way comparison, but just, just to, we, we have to be in touch with our own vulnerability to realize how very vulnerable Jesus is in this passage, this gospel passage this morning. Jesus has, uh, this is the second time in the gospel of Mark in just a couple of chapters, back in chapter eight, now in chapter nine, and again in chapter 10, Jesus will very, very emphatically say, I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill me. But after three days, I will rise. And the disciples don't understand the rising and they don't, they're afraid to ask. And I'll get that in a second. But for a moment there, I just want to, I just want to remind you about the God that we serve. A God who is willing to be made vulnerable. Not just in the incarnation, which obviously is the chief way he shows us his love and his vulnerability by being willing to submit himself. But, but God is, is vulnerable even in the sense that he created things, understanding that things would go amok. Understanding that we would rebel against him and walk in disobedience and cause him pain and anguish. And God understood that and yet God creates. He extends himself but only by, by extending himself, God is making himself vulnerable. And Jesus expresses that vulnerability to be handed over to men. 
I mean, if you recall the Old Testament passage where David sins against God, and remember he, he counts the, the soldiers? Seems like a good thing to do, count how many men you've got, right? But it's a, it's a sin because he's told not to, not to do it, and, and God says you have a choice. You can, you can, either, you know, you can either be given over to, to men who will pursue you, or you can suffer by my hand, in a, and I will, I will pour out my wrath on you for three days. I think it's three months to be pursued, or three days, and David says, I'll take three days with your judgment, God, rather than be put in the hands of men. Jesus is, is hitting that same note as he talks about the vulnerability that he's about to walk into. Jesus models that vulnerability, and it's something that we're called to be vulnerable. As a matter of fact, one of the things I've been learning through a class I've been taking is that, is that to be vulnerable is to be human. To, we, we are all vulnerable. We hide that vulnerability, but the reality is that we are all vulnerable. But it's part of the human way, and it's the way that the Lord is, walks through with us in those things if we let him. But the disciples aren't prone to understanding that, and so we get this incredible gospel passage here where we're just amazed. We scratch our heads at these, these disciples and their un- inability to to, uh, to grasp what Jesus is trying to teach them. Um, they've been on the Mount of Transfiguration, at least the, the three, Peter, James, and John, and then they've come down and they've, they've watched Jesus drive out a demonic spirit from this young man and his father, and Jesus has taught them about, you know, the importance of prayer. And now we come to this passage, and again, I, I want to hit the note of, of prayer because I think it really does... Um, I think one of the ways we can understand and appropriate stories in the Gospels where the disciples are having conversations with Jesus is to think about our own prayer life. And yes, I know that Jesus is not standing before us and you can't verbally hear him speak. But if we begin to think in terms of how the disciples interact with Jesus as the way we would interact with Jesus through our own prayer life, I believe we'll benefit from these stories even more. So Jesus is very vulnerable about it. He's going to be given himself over to the hands of men. He's going to suffer for them, but on the third day rise. But rather than ask Jesus about that, they're silent with him. And they go on the road quietly arguing about who among them is the greatest. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Perhaps it's James, Peter, and John who are saying, well, clearly you guys are the inferior disciples because you couldn't drive out the demon. So we got to see Jesus on the mountain, so we're the superior. And, and, you know, and then maybe the other disciples are saying, well, yeah, well, obviously we're superior because we don't have to, you know, we don't have to go up on the mountain. And we, we, we're down here doing the work while you guys are off schluffing around up the top of the mountain with Jesus. Who knows the conversation they had, but, but there's this battle back and forth between them about who's the greatest. And, and, and they're saying this. On the tail end of Jesus telling them that he is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and that he's going to be killed. I mean, what do you... (laughs) I think the lesson to learn is, is, is simply prayer is about listening to the Lord, hearing what the Lord has to say. We so often, and I know I said this last week, but I, I think I need to repeat it. We, we, we're, we're on a, f- a, a theme of prayer, it seems to be right now. Um, we have our catechism classes starting. 
And both Kathy and Bob on the Wednesday night and the Sunday morning are both talking about the Lord's Prayer. They're talking about prayer. But I, I want to make this prayer because I, I think this, this needs to be said over and over again. Prayer is not just about you communicating to God. It's also about you listening to how God wants to communicate to you. But I think over and over again, when we get together, we tend to think about prayer as us speaking to the Lord. And I don't know how to, how to get us past that other than just to simply keep saying it over and over again. Um, one of my criticisms of the National Day of Prayer is that we spend all of our time praying in, in the sense that we're all speaking prayers to God, but we don't spend any time at all just sort of being quiet before the Lord to hear what he has to say. Now, I, I think you can say that, that part of prayer is as, as you pray, I listen to you and I listen for the Lord's voice in what you're praying. And I think that's one way we listen. But there are times where we just have to listen and be quiet. So I, I, I love to, to pray as I, as I run. I, I like to run. I know some of you hate to run, but I pray for you that you would learn, love to run. But, um, but when, I'm, when I'm running, I am exhausted physically and I find my spirit open to what the Lord would speak to me. For some of you, that may be a walk. For some of, that, some, some of you, that may be sitting quietly by a stream or, uh, you know, or out at Payne's Prairie or along the river. Perhaps it's while you're playing your guitar or another instrument or singing songs. I, I don't know how the Lord speaks to you, but, but the understanding that the Lord... It's listening to him because Jesus is being so very vulnerable to the disciples here, and yet they can't see it. Oftentimes, I think scripture reading can be one of the most powerful ways of listening to the, God, to the Lord speak to us. Proverbs 24 was our reading this morning, and, and I just commend to you, if you struggle with where to read the Bible, just read a chapter in Proverbs. There's 31, and so you can read, you know, whatever day of the week it is. Today's the 19th, and so you would read chapter 19 of Proverbs, and every day of the month you'll have a, a chapter. And just listen for the Lord to speak to you through one of those verses. So extremely practical. And it really doesn't take that much time. I know some of you are, are time-pressed, but, but take that time to, to allow Scripture. If you struggle with prayer, and being a pastor, I hear it all the time, I struggle with my prayer life. I struggle how to pray. And my response is, just open the Bible and, and just say, Lord, will you speak to me through your word and then just start reading. And then let the Lord speak to you. If the Lord is just communicating to you and you're not communicating to the Lord, you're still praying. And if the disciples could have learned that, they would have, they would have saved themselves yet one more teaching on humility, right? Because they can't. They keep, they're talking they, they don't understand, and yet they don't ask a follow-up question. And it's over and over again. They, they don't understand. Last week we talked about that, that, that Jesus takes the young boy who looks like he's dead, and they, he raises him up, and, and, and Jesus is showing them, this is what it's going to look like when I raise you from the dead, just as I'm going to be raised from the dead. And yet they don't ask him. They don't, they're, they, they're, they're not inquisitive. They're not willing to be vulnerable to the Lord and ask him to, to a follow-up question. So Jesus does what Jesus always does. He models the behavior he's looking for. And so what does Jesus do? He asks them the question. When he comes down from the mountain, a few verses before, remember, he says, what are you arguing with those guys about? Now he says, what are you discussing on the way? And he knows he's Jesus. But he asks the question. He opens up 
relationship. Some of us need to learn in, in, in relationships to, to quit telling things to other people and start listening and asking questions and inviting relationship. Jesus models that for them. He draws them out by the questions he asks. What are you discussing? They don't want to tell him, right? Because they're not discussing, they're arguing. They're arguing about who among them is the greatest. Prayer is not simply listening, but secondly, it's about asking questions. Now, I'm not a big journaler, but I, think, I find that journaling at times that are really confusing in my life become helpful. And a lot of my journal entries to the Lord are prayers where I am simply just asking God questions that I don't have answers for. And I'm invoking, I'm praying that the Lord would, would, would give me answers. And so instead of asking him for things, I begin to ask questions. Lord, I've prayed for this. Why haven't you answered that question? What are you teaching me through not answering my request? So Lord, what is it you want me to learn in this situation? The disciples need to learn to ask questions they, they don't, but Jesus models it for them. What are you talking about? Now, it's the natural way of men and women that we compare ourselves, we rank ourselves. I don't know if you know this, but there's a whole internet thing devoted to the GOAT, the greatest of all time, right? Is LeBron James or Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player of all times? I know, I'm not going to tell you, but I know the answer to that. But my point is that we spend all of our time ranking people, right? On the football field, right? At, at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium was the, the, you know, the band processed off the, I saw this on Twitter, and, and they had made the number five. Why? Because UF has been named the fifth best public university in America. That's like amazing. It means all of our house values go up. That's awesome. But, but we, we tend to rank each other. We, we, we compare ourselves. We compare preachers. We compare doctors. We compare lawyers. We compare every aspect, teachers and every aspect of life. We, we rank and can we compare ourselves. It's, it's how we kind of judge who we are. But, but, but Jesus is aware of that. And so he asked that question to, to draw them out from, from this, this system of the world that they've bought into, which is to, to think of greatness in the way the world thinks. James says, don't be friends with the world. And I think sometimes that's been mistaken. James was the New Testament passage we heard. And James says a lot in there, a lot of wisdom in the book of James. By the way, you could also, that's a good place to just to read through the book of James and listen to how God would respond. Very, very convicting. Jesus says, James says, don't be friends with the world. Some people have taken that to mean that we're not to have friendships with non-Christians, but that would be so counter to Jesus to say, don't be friends with the, with the world. I mean, Jesus, who is, he having, who is he in relationship with? Tax collectors, sinners, all the way through, prostitutes. He's, he is constantly around the people who are worldly. What, it, what Jesus and what James are getting at in, this, in that verse in James is, is not to not have friendships with the world, but don't, don't be friendly with the system of the world. Don't, don't model your life after the system of the world. Yes, Everyone around you is ranking and comparing and grasping for greatness. If they can't be great, they at least want to be associated with great people. But not so you. 
Jesus says, let me, let me tell you, you you're ambitious. Well, be ambitious to be a servant to all. First century Judaism was, was, was full of all sorts of rank and comparisons. It's like, you know, I, you know I, it reminds me of middle school band. First chair, second chair, third chair. You know, I moved to Florida in 1980, mid-year, mid and, and uh, I was, just for whatever reason, our band in Georgia was, was, was more advanced than the band in, in Jacksonville. And so I was, I was instantly first chair clarinet. Yes, I played the clarinet in middle school. It's a long story. But, um, but I was first chair. My hero, who's a year older than me in Georgia, this really cool kid played clarinet. And he was cool and played clarinet. And I thought that meant clarinet playing for boys was cool. I know in the 30s and 40s it was, but unfortunately in the 70s and 80s, it had lost its luster, okay? And so I immediately began to feel a little unconscious about being the only male clarinet player. And so I just didn't practice. And I went from first chair to second chair to third chair to fourth chair to eventually dropping out of band. Jesus understands that we are given to comparisons, but Jesus turns it upside down. He says, he who would be greatest will be the servant of all. And here is that diakonos, that, that word in the Greek that we, where we get the word deacon. We've got two people in our, in our own congregation that are, that are in the process of, of being ordained diakonos, deacons. Justin Smith, back here to my right, and Kathy Ayers, who uh, I believe is out ministering to to one of our children right now. And, and, and these are ones who, who would be in our midst, reminding us to, to minister to those who are outside of our, our comfort zone, who are at the margins of society or perhaps overlooked. Justin's passion is for, is for the homeless and, and, uh, and Kathy's passion is for those with disabilities who oftentimes are, are not included and not given proper place in the community and value in the community. And that diaconate ministry represents exactly what Jesus is getting here, that, that we're called greatness in the kingdom looks like serving others. You know, I'm, I'm often amazed now in this kind of COVID tide that we're living through, you know, right now it seems like you go to restaurants and the people who are most consistently wearing masks are the servers, the people in the restaurants. You, some of you complain about a mask for an hour and a half. Imagine wearing a mask for your entire work. You know, I, I realize medical people, you medical folks do the same thing. It's how uncomfortable it is to wear these masks. And stuff. But I think about these, these servants who are waiting tables and serving at counters and they're wearing these masks. And, and oftentimes we, we don't even acknowledge them as, as people worth our time. They're just, they're just, Jesus is saying, if you want to know what greatness looks like in the kingdom, it, it looks like being a servant. Being willing to serve, not be served. I wonder, what if your performance review was based upon how well you knew the janitors that work in your building? Or the receptionist? Or the lowest entry level employee? the service techs, whatever that would look like in your place. The lowly curate. How would we measure up? 
Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It is the, it is the nature of the kingdom of God that we should seek to be those who serve rather than be served. But oftentimes, even in the church, we don't understand that upside down relationship. And we honor and respect people who are, have influence or who have power. We kiss up to the, the rector or the bishop or whatever the position is. And we, we think it's about, it's, it's, it's where the world has pushed us into its, mode, its mold and its mode. And, it, and it's so easy to do. And yet Jesus is calling the disciples to something far different. Now, I mean, I, I want to say here that, that one of the things that I learned I think was helpful in seminary is that, that I am your servant, but you're not my master. My master is the Lord. I serve him. And for all of you who are ministry leaders, I would say to you, you, you know, you serve the people around you, but they're not your masters. Believe me, there are people who will try to manipulate you and try to say, you've got to serve me, right? And they'll give you their laundry list of things they want you to do to serve them. Resist that because that's not, that's not the kingdom of God. That's, that's the kingdom of world trying to exercise power and manipulation. But, but we are called to serve. And then just to, to, just to bring it a complete full circle, Jesus takes a small child, and he, he brings him into the circle. Probably this was one of Peter's children, because remember, Peter, J- Jesus has come back to Capernaum. Capernaum is where Peter lives, and they go into a house, and he's with the disciples, and it's, it's very likely this is, this is Peter's child that, that Jesus takes up on his lap, and he says, this little child, if anyone would, would be my follower, right, he, he has to He has to receive such a little child, he says in verse 37. He takes him up in his arms and he says, whoever would receive such a one as this, this child in my name receives me. Now, children were not revered. I mean, my grandchildren grow up in a society where to be a child is to be a blessed thing. As a matter of fact, my children were like, Oh, we don't want to grow up and become adults because when you become an adult, you have to take on so many responsibilities. And being a student is such a wonderful experience. And I totally agree with them in our society. Not the way it was in the first century. The first century, children, probably because of the mortality rate and also because of the fact that it was an agrarian society that required lots of labor, children were seen as either a workforce or or someone to be sort of marginalized in the society. They were not treasured and valued at all. So what Jesus is not saying is, you know, he's, he's, he's saying, if you've received the most marginalized, the weakest, the most powerless person in the society, you've received me. Which sounds a lot like Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when you've You've clothed, you know, he says, when, you, when I was hungry and you fed me and I was naked and you clothed me, I, I was in prison, you came to visit me. And, G, and they say, Jesus, when did we do that? When were you in prison? When were you naked? And he said, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. It's the parallel text here. Jesus is saying when, you, when he takes it even further, not only are we called to serve and not be served, but in fact, that, that when we serve those least and marginalized, we're serving Christ. 
And then Jesus says, but not only, not only are you receiving me, but you're receiving him who sent me. To receive the least powerless, marginalized, most seemingly insignificant in the world's eyes person is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the last point on prayer is that prayer should result in godly action. We should listen as much or more than we speak. We should ask questions in our prayers and our prayers should lead us to godly action. So the question is, who are you serving? Years ago as a teenager, we had cassette tapes for those that are under 40. Those were, I can't even describe it. I have nothing to describe it for. You've maybe seen them in museums or in thrift stores if you've ever seen it. But we had cassette tapes and I got cassette tapes from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Society. I know I was one of those Christian nerd kids. And I would listen to these different testimonies that Billy Graham would introduce. And I learned about Corey Tin Boone through these things. I learned about Johnny Erickson Tata through Billy Graham's, these, these cassette tapes that he they send out. James knows what I'm talking about because he's as old as I am. And, and, but there was one that, that particularly impacted me. And it was about a, a gospel singer. And I don't even know the man's name. I can't remember it. But I remember that the testimony of this man was that he struggled in his career and then he, he just couldn't seem to, to make the breakthrough that musicians have to get if they're going to be successful. And at the same time, God began to call him to minister to the man that lived across the street from him. And no, no judgment here, but the man was like, an, you know, in his 40s or 50s. He'd lived with his mother his whole life. Kind of that failure to launch kind of a person. And, and, and he just had a lot of hangups and a lot of quirks and a lot of, you know, kind of strange behaviors. And, and this man, I just remember the man was, was just compelled to go and minister to this guy. And he, he gets, it gets so far and he was a great storyteller. And so he gets to the point where he's literally fixing this, this man's toilet, you know, and he's got his hands. If you've ever worked on a toilet, you understand this. He's got his hands around the, this man's toilet and he's working on it. And he's like, Lord, what in the heck are you doing? And the testimony was basically that the Lord did not allow him to have any success at all in his career until he learned to be a servant to the least of these. And boy, changed my whole perspective. Not that I, you know, we all want to be successful, but, you know, but, but it, it reminded me that, that, that those those folks that seem to be hard to love or marginalized or in the world's view insignificant in fact are those people that God brings to our lives to say how will you handle this are you too good to minister to this person and the reality is the Lord, he has to use us. I mean, he wants us to be successful and he wants to do things through us. He gives us a certain amount of power and influence and, and, and he gives us obviously all sorts of resources that he, he's in, in, he blessed us with. But he wants to know if we will make those things our own or with, if we'll recognize that there are gifts and demonstrate that by how we serve the least Now, the last thing I want to say is that if you feel as if you are that marginalized least, 
in the world's view, insignificant person. Understand that the God of the universe says that identifying with you is exactly the person he wants to be associated with. You are loved. And you don't have to achieve or be recognized or be found great to have the affection and love of the God of the universe. And let's be honest, we're all misfit toys, right? Some of us are luckier than others. But especially for those who feel insignificant and marginalized and powerless and overlooked, you're not. You are loved by the God of the universe. Friends, our prayer life should cause us and bring us to godly action that we might be his hands and his feet, that we might be those who communicate the vulnerability of God and his willingness to lay down his life for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.